All right, welcome back, students. We're going to talk today about Book 11 and Homer's Odyssey, and in Homer's Odyssey, and we're going to talk about the underworld in Homer's Odyssey and the sort of ancient Greek conception of Hades or the afterlife. That said, we have a lot to say about that, but we're going to start with a piece of levity. So everybody open your books to page 169 in the Lattimore, and we are going to see how a very, very foolish one of our companions dies. I just want to set this right for all of you. So when I look out and I see you all, I should see you all looking at your books. And so when I look down to line 50, let's say 55 or so, I broke into tears at the sight of him and my heart pitied him. And so I spoke aloud to him and addressed him in winged words. This is Odysseus who has just now gotten to the, the uh, mouth of the underworld. Elvenor, how did you come here beneath the fog in the darkness? You have come faster on foot than I could in my black ship. And now I want to read to you something that is both tragic because it makes Odysseus cry, but also sort of funny to us because we consider it ridiculous and we thought Elpenor was not a particularly intelligent individual as of our seminar yesterday. So I spoke and he groaned aloud and spoke and answered. And when he groans aloud, you can be sure that what he's going to say is something that... Not very clever, right? Uh, you can be sure that he's going to say something that is not... Uh, that does not cause him great um, pride, but rather causes him some shame. Son of Laertes and seed of Zeus, resourceful Odysseus, the evil will of the spirit and the wild wine bewildered me. I lay down on the roof of Circe's palace, read along, and never thought when I went down to go by way of the long ladder. I lay down on the roof of Circe's palace and never thought when I went down to go by way of the long ladder. Does that mean that he forgot? That there was a ladder there and tried to jump does that mean that he tripped and fell off in any case does he seem like a very admirable individual no not the sort of person that you would want to be like but blundered straight off the edge of the roof so that my neck bone was broken out of its sockets and my soul went down to hades and then he says i pray for you to bury my body and if you don't i'm gonna haunt you like a poltergeist for the rest of your life so you better do that for me, Odysseus will agree. So, let's talk about this. We had just gotten to Circe's Isle. At Circe's Isle, we sent our men up to her house. Her house, she seems to be working at the distaff, weaving, and she's singing, and she seems very inviting to us. But as I said to you earlier, she, this tale is very similar to a folk tale, a folk tale we all know, the tale of Hansel and Gretel, Gretel or Hansel and Gretel. They now having a new stepmother who does not want them, and having a father who is, I believe, a hunter. He takes them out into the forest, they try and leave some breadcrumbs, of course. The birds eat the breadcrumbs. They find themselves at a gingerbread house with a nice old lady who says she wants to help them, but actually she wants to what them? Eat them up. And in fact, that is what Circe wants to do with the men of Odysseus. They come in, she offers them hospitality, or so they think. They eat and they drink. Well, was she so hospitable? Probably not, because what happens to the men after they have the malignant drugs or the transformative drugs that are within the wine and the food of Circe? What is it that they are turned into? Pigs. Pigs. So Odysseus has to go save them. He does go and save them with the help of Hermes. They spend a year hanging out with Circe, trying to recover from their travels. They've been on the sea for some time. Most of their friends are dead. Recalled with the Lystragones. Destroyed how many out of how many ships? Yes? 11 out of 12. 11 out of 12. So these guys have had a rough go of it. And they're probably not feeling super 
happy about themselves or happy about the world at this particular moment. And so it makes sense that they would then go into an underworld, into a place of darkness, into a place where the memories of men exist. It's as if after you go through a tragedy, you have to work through what was tragic about that moment. You have to go back into the past and figure out what it is that happened in order to restore yourself to the present. And so in any case, Odysseus is told by Circe, if you want to move forward, you need to figure out what it is you need to do next. The person you need to see is Tiresias. Sounds simple enough. The only problem is, Tiresias is what? Dead. Dead. And so that's the trick. How do we go to see this blind prophet who was, in fact, the prophet who told the prophecy about Oedipus, who we will read about after we finish the Odyssey? Here's the prophecy that he told about Oedipus. You will kill your father and lay with your mother. And here's a spoiler alert. Tiresias is never wrong. Tiresias is never wrong. And so, when Odysseus goes down into the underworld, it will be for sure the truth that he receives from Tiresias if A, he can find him, and B, he can make it back. But that is the real trick, because most people who go into the underworld never do what? Never come back. Specific heroes do, Heracles, Theseus, not Parathos. He eats the food down there, stays down there. Um, Odysseus will. Later we'll see Aeneas do the same. And next year you will see Dante do the same thing. You'll even see uh, the character of Lucifer do something very similar to that in Paradise Lost. In any case, gates of the underworld being twice open to an individual is mark of profound heroism. Mark of profound heroism. It's funny, I'm even teaching about that in Cantos 14 and 15 of the Divine Comedy in the Sphere of Mars today with Pachaguida and Dante. So, Odysseus and his men sail to the limit of the world, the limit of the world. This is a liminal space, a place beyond known territory, unknown territory, populated with all sorts of things from your imagination. What is it that you see often sort of squiggling through old maps along the water where people would not have seen? Yes, yes? <coughs> Like a sea monster, right? Like a large snake, exactly. Well, do such Nessie-like sea monsters really exist? No. So where did we get the idea of them from? Our what's? Not just our minds, imaginations. our imaginations. That's right. What do you populate unknown places with? Imagination. Images from your imagination. That's right. That's right. In fact, the unions call that projection. When you meet a new person who's unknown, you project onto them your idea of what such a person's person should be. So when you meet me, you think, teacher. And insofar as I act just like a teacher, you're like, that's right. Insofar as I act uniquely and differently, you think that's sort of odd. Which is why I'm sort of an interesting teacher. In any case, near a forest, they then sacrifice and create a potion made of blood, milk, and honey. I thought a lot about why these elements. I think why these elements, because they all come from living creatures. And what this potion is supposed to do with its blood, milk, and honey is to give substance back to the shades. They're apparently flittering at all times, and they don't even have minds before they've eaten the substance. And so what is it that an insubstantial state, say, or excuse me, shade needs more than anything? Well, some, some, some substance, some living Liquid, something to get the juices flowing again. Yes. What do you mean by flittering? Flittering, as in they like fly about, oh. like bats. 
like bats. A bat would flitter. All right. So we carve out a circle on the ground. We do this weird ritual. We cut a goat's throat. And then shades appear around us. Wispy, white. We don't actually go down into the underworld in the Odyssey, but the underworld denizens sort of appear near us and we can see off into the distance. Is it, it is literally as if we are in a liminal space. We can see just vaguely off into the distance what may be there. And the whole time that we are talking to the dead, we will fear the Persephone, queen of the dead, consort to Hades, Lord Hades, will send up an image of the Gorgon, or will send up the head of the Gorgon, that's the head of Medusa, with the snakes on top of it, and the crazy eyes. And what is it that we know that the Medusa, that the Gorgon will do to us if we see her eyes? Turn us to stone. So we are always fearing what, and if the Gorgon itself is a symbol for the petrification one feels, in a scary situation. That is why we say you are petrified by fear. That means you are rooted to a spot. That means you feel how, or that means that you, if you're petrified, how much are you moving? None. And so the symbol seems to be that what is the scariest thing about the underworld? A symbol for fear? Does that mean that the thing that you must fear most in the underworld is fear itself? Very interesting. So the first person we appear, we're going to see people that appear sort of from our proximate life. The people we knew well. And then the people we knew well that we haven't seen in a while. And then the people from more of the past. And then the people from the distant past. We're going to have to peel away layers of this underworld in order to get to Teresius. And so the first person we meet, of course, is the most recent person to have died in our lives. Who is the most per recent person to have died for us? Yes. Elpenor, of course. And so... We see Elpenor, Odysseus cries. He apparently didn't even know that Elpenor had died. Yet another dead person in Odysseus's life, very sad. He explains that he fell off the roof, asked to be buried, sort of threatens to haunt Odysseus. Odysseus, though, he likes Elpenor. It's one of his crewmates. He will be returning to Circe's Island to recuperate and uh, get more vittles. And so he will certainly bury poor Elpenor. Oof, poor Elpenor, poor Elpenor here. In any case... We move on. And the hits keep on coming. Because if you go down into the underworld, I mean, I want you to think about this. Who are you going to see in the underworld? Dead people. Probably you're going to look for dead people that you wanted. Loved. So when you see them in the underworld, how do you think you will feel? Super sad. Exactly. And that is also one of the dangers of the underworld. Because if you see somebody you loved quite a bit, like, say, Orpheus and his dead wife who was killed on his wedding day by a snake, Eurydice, what might you be tempted to do? Stay. Stay. And that is not what Orpheus did, but that is something to watch out for. The old saying is that do not eat the food of the underworld. That is what Pyrrhothoos did. That is what kept him in the underworld. It is as if you are supposed to be a passenger here. It reminds me quite a bit, just because this movie is coming out in live-action form, and we have the Broadway version of it coming to San Diego now, it reminds me a bit of Aladdin. Where in Aladdin is obviously a correlate to this underworld filled with treasures full of information. 
Where is the Aladdin underworld? What is the Aladdin underworld full of treasures from the past? Yes? The Cave of Wonders. And of course, what you learn in the cave is that none of the physical things have utmost value. But the thing that has the most value is the thing that seems most common, which is the what? The lamp. And inside the lamp is a what? And the genie grants what? So a genie is a symbol of consciousness attained through struggle. Because if you're a conscious being, who grants your wishes? You do. Through doing the work necessary to get them. Very good. So, Odysseus's mother appears. Her name is Anticlea or Anticlea. Very sad. Because Odysseus did not know that his mother was dead. When he left Troy, she was alive. And funnily enough, he says, I'll talk to you in a minute, though. Mother, this is what especially recalls to me Aladdin in the Cave of Wonders. Even though he wants to talk to her, even though he wants to embrace her, he's got business to attend to. And so, Tiresias appears. He's allowed to drink from the milk, honey, blood liquid. And he tells us a grievous warning. And the grievous warning is this. Do not go to the cattle of the sun island. Do not go to Helios's island called Phrynichia. On that island are golden cattle that are holy to the sun because they're golden, like the sun. Do not go to that island. Great danger is there. And if you do go to the island for some crazy reason, you must not eat the cattle again. A prohibition against eating at the wrong time. We know that when you eat the wrong thing in the Odyssey, you can die or be grievously injured. One more sometimes when something eaten or something drink it, or drunk led to mistakes, errors, or pain for individuals. Yes? Drinking after sacking the Kokone City? 72 people dead. Yes. At Circe's Island, drink and eat the food she offers? Die. What about Agamemnon? When he got home, he's offered some food and drink by not very hospitable people. What did his wife and cousin then do to him? Killed him. What about the Cyclops? What did he eat and drink that he ought not have? Humans and wine. He got punished. And, ah, yes. Thinking back to your reading, because your reading's a little bit ahead right now. Who's always eating and drinking food that is not theirs and not sacrificing to the gods, yes? The suitors. And so, if we know a theme from the Odyssey is that when you eat or drink something inappropriate or in the appropriate way or from the inappropriate person, doom follows you, who are we sure will have doom come upon them at some point at this moment, though it is Odysseus who is taking all the risks at this time? The suitors. Very good. In any case, that will be our hypothesis. We'll see if it comes true. Tiresias then tells us the second part, or the first parts of the prophecy of the curse of Polyphemus. We know that when we told Polyphemus that our name was not nobody, but rather Odysseus, that he cursed us through Poseidon. He called down a curse from Poseidon. The curse is devastating. Utterly devastating. Two ways it can go, like the two fates of Achilles. Either you will die on the sea, Odysseus, 
That's fair. Okay, that's a pretty bad fate. Or you'll lose all your companions. You will return home in a poor condition on another person's ship late, and there will be suitors infesting your house. And a big question you might well want to wonder is, which one of those fates is worse? Because on the one hand, you die. But on the other hand, you probably what? After a lot of work. Still die. And a question you might want to ask is, is Odysseus at this moment being like, wow, why did I ever leave Calypso's Island? I'm in the underworld right now. All my men are going to die who are still... Uh, oh, excuse me. What a foolish question. I just, Obviously, he has not been to Calypso's Island yet in the underworld. So something he must be wondering now is, my gosh, I've come so far. I've come to the ends of the earth seeking the underworld. And all I find is that I have to lose even more or just die. He sounds a bit like who? Who is the person who had to work so hard in order to access a god who would tell him the truth and how to get home? But when he asked how to get home, he was told he had to go back to where it was he started in the first place. Ah, uh, yes. Menelaus. Menelaus. He's very like Menelaus, this Odysseus here. He's told when he gets down into the underworld, a truth, but not a pleasant truth, but rather a bitter truth. He's given a bitter pill to swallow. Yes. Well, didn't Odysseus say that he prefers to struggle in life, so maybe the second option would be better? Well, that does seem to be what his efforts will reveal to us. He could just die, like all of his companions. Like all of them, I wouldn't necessarily choose to do, but it will be their choices largely that lead to them to death. He does seem to be the sort of person that perseveres, regardless of the trouble. It is as if he is an eternal representation of the capacity in man to persevere through Im seemingly impossible things. That who gets through that? Most people or one? One, if any. One, if any. So even if you get home, you will lose all your companions and come back on another ship and find insolent suitors in your house. Even should you defeat all these challenges. Ah, yes. Additional piece of information here. You will still end up leaving Ithaca. You will meet a people called the purple-cheeked people. You'll plant an oar near them because they know nothing of the sea. And then you will die in a completely unwarlike way, either away from the sea or out from the sea. You might want to read through the map. And so... Odysseus' struggles are never wedding. Never-ending, right. When does he stop having to struggle and fight and compete in his life? Never. When does a human ever have to stop struggling and fighting and competing in their life? Never, right. Exactly. And so it's almost like the reward for living is what? Suffering. But you get to choose what you suffer for. And what is it that he is suffering to get to? His family, his home. It's almost as if the idea of home or family is the ultimate ideal or idea. That which is worth spending your whole life suffering for. This is very interesting given the fact that you all have parents. I wonder what it is they spend their every days working for. Just themselves? Hmm. <laughs> Probably not. And so, ah yes, back to Anticlea. I love this picture. I think it's got it just right. If what a shade is, is not so much a physical thing, but a memory from the past, can you hug said shade? No. 
Of course not. Can you hug the past? You might want things from the past, like that piece of pizza that you ate on Saturday night that you were planning to save until today. But can you eat that memory pizza? No, it can make your mouth water, but it cannot make your stomach stop grumbling. And if your mother is dead, which Odysseus is, can he ever hug her again? Which, you know, if one has a mother, might be a good time to hug her while she's alive. In any case, he addresses her, lines 155 to 225. First, she wonders if he is dead. She's very sad. Yes. I don't know. That's an interesting question. Um, in Dante's Inferno, we will see that they can touch each other, but we don't see any evidence necessarily of that here. In the Aeneid, we will see that actually the Achaeans and the Trojans still commit battles. And actually, I do have some evidence for the answer being yes. We will see at the end of the underworld, Heracles, as a shade, who is still hunting creatures that are dead. And so, potentially, yes, they can interact with each other in that respect. Good question. And so, she wonders if he is dead and came from Troy. No, he won Troy, actually. He can make her quite proud. He says he has come to learn from Tiresias. Well, he asks her how she died, and she, in an epic moment of mother-guilting son, says that she died of longing for Odysseus to return, as if he had been dawdling around the whole time rather than finding a ten-year-long war, and then having quite a bit of difficulty making it home in the first place. She guilts him. She says that it was because of want of him that she died, lines 185 to 200. And so then three times Odysseus tries to hug her but fail. And this becomes a very important epic motif. We will see Aeneas try three times to hug his dead wife right after she has died and failed. We will see him try to hug his father in the underworld in book six. The first time was in book two. We will see then next year in the Purgatorio, Dante trying to hug his friend Casella. Over and over in these epics. People run into figures from the past. It is as if they are conjuring into their memories, their mind's eyes, the figures of these people and learning a lesson from them. And even though you can forever learn lessons from those who have been part of your life or parts of your lives who have died, can you still benefit from the presence of those people? Can you still touch them, hold them, smell them? No. The lessons they teach you remain. They disappear. And so, important to make an impact during this life. All right, so let's continue. You don't need to write the review. We met Elpinor, we met Tiresias, we met Anticlea. So, now we're going to see some Achaean heroes. Because we've just come from Troy. You just read the Iliad. It has not been so long for you. Just a few months ago, these men were all alive. Agamemnon, Achilleus, Aias the Greater. After that, there's a procession of women. We'll see Tiro, Epicasta, who is Jocasta, who is the mother of Oedipus, who you'll know very well soon enough. But yes, these Achaean heroes. Well, if I see Agamemnon down there, and I'm Odysseus, A, I need to know how it is that he got down there, and B, I need to see, hmm, I'm very interested to know no, that's all I need to know. What I'm very interested about is how is it that he died because I didn't know he was dead. Achilles is down there. I'm very interested <laughs> to see him and know how death is for him. And Ice the Greater, well, 
If I'm Odysseus, I won, I won Achilles' armor from him. He then committed suicide very soon after that. And so I'd like to bury the hatchet with him, though not bury the hatchet in him. Oh, <laughs> he did that himself. In any case, let's see what they have to say. Odysseus and Agamemnon. Agamemnon describes something very similar to what Anticlea and what Elpenor described. The final events of his life. It is as if he has become illustrative of a foolish way to die, or of a, hmm, a way to die that could have been prevented with additional attention and information given to the situation. It is as if what caused Agamemnon to die was hubris. Not only hubris, which is sometimes translated as arrogance in our language, but the belief that who he was when he left Mycenae, was the same person he was when he came back, that his wife was the same person when he came back as when she left as well, and that the situation that he came back to was the same. None of that was the same. He is not the same person. He comes back with Cassandra, a concubine, a concubine that tries to warn him against being killed by his wife. However, she is cursed by Apollo to tell accurate prophecies that nobody believes. Little does Agamemnon know that while he's been fighting and taking a concubine and fighting with Achilleus as well as the Trojans, Clytemnestra has met Aegisthus, his cousin, Aegisthus who wants his crown, Aegisthus whose father was killed by Agamemnon, Thiestes. And so Agamemnon does not realize that Aegisthus and Clytemnestra want vengeance. Recall also that Clytemnestra wanted vengeance because Agamemnon tricked her into bringing their first daughter, Iphigenia, to Aulis, where she was then sacrificed, not married, to Achilles. And so Agamemnon says, and this is a very interesting claim that he makes, that Clytemester has shamed and heaped shame, like a mountain, onto women for all time. Which is a very interesting claim, because in order for him to validate that claim, every woman must act exactly like Clytemestra in a betraying way. And now uh, that's very interesting because, well, Odysseus does make this point. He says, I can see why you would say that, Agamemnon. You sons of Atreus have had lots of trouble with women. Not only were you killed by Clytemestra, but her sister, Helen, your brother, did not have such a good time with. And she, of course, was taken or left with Paris. And so Odysseus mentions the irony of this. In him being ironic, is he saying that he agrees with Agamemnon or that he disagrees but understands what Agamemnon is saying? Disagrees. And why would he disagree? Who is it that he knows is a woman who he thinks is loyal who is actually loyal? Penelope, his own wife. He has a counterexample to Agamemnon's claim. And so he doesn't have to take Agamemnon's word for it. In any case, Agamemnon still seems to be rather sweet or bitter about this. Very much better. Agamemnon says not to trust his home and wife when he returns to Odysseus. Make sure not to tell her everything that it is that you know. I will tell you one little secret. Odysseus at first will not do this, but in the second place he will. Once he is revealed to Penelope, he will not keep even Circe or Calypso from her. A lot of what between Penelope and Odysseus? Trust. Very good. Very good. Achilles then approaches. We really want to hear what he has to say. 
Odysseus introduces himself very well. He says, oh, oh, Athelaus, perhaps I should actually read this to you specifically if I can find it very quickly. I am a couple books behind right here. Book nine. I'm just going to flip to, oh, we're passing the Lystragones. Death of Elpenor. Okay, I'm in book 11. Three times I started towards her. Good. Okay. Yes. All right, we're seeing the gathering of the women. Maya. Yes. Yes. All right. Ah, yes. The son, the soul of Agamemnon. There he is speaking. There is no trusting in women, he says. Ah, yes. So we two stood there, line 465, exchanging our sad words, grieving both together and shedding the big tears. After this, there came to us the soul of Peleus' son, Achilleus, and the soul of Patroclus, and the soul of stately Antilochus, very sad, and the soul of Ias, the greater here, who for beauty and stature was greatest of all the Danaeans, next to the stately son of Peleus. The soul of swift-footed Achilleus, scion of Iacos, knew me, and full of lamentation he spoke to me in winged words. Son of Laertes and seed of Zeus, resourceful Odysseus. Hard man, what made you think of this bigger endeavor? How could you endure to come down here to Hades' place where the senseless dead men dwell? Mere imitations of perished mortals. So he spoke, and I again said to him in answer, Son of Peleus, far the greatest of the Achaeans, Achilleus, I came for the need to consult Tiresias, if he might tell me some plan by which I might come back to rocky Ithaca, where I have not yet been near Achaean country, nor ever set foot on my land. But always I have troubles. Achilles, no man before has been more blessed than you, nor ever will be. Before, when you were alive, we Argives honored you as we did the gods. And now in this place you have great authority over the dead. Do not grieve, even in death. What an introduction to Achilles. We honored you as the gods when you were alive, and even when you are dead, you see him as a god amongst shades. Let us see whether Achilles has what he wants or continues to maintain the personality that he had in the Iliad, which is to believe that that which he does not have is the best thing to have. <clears throat> o shining Odysseus, never try to console me for dying. I would rather follow the plow as thrall, slave, to another man, one with no land allotted him and not so much to live on, than be a king over all the perished dead. But come now, tell me anything you have heard about my proud son, whether or not he went along to fight, oh, excuse me, along to war to fight as champion. And tell me anything you have heard about stately Peleus, whether he thinks or whether he still keeps his position among the Myrmidon hordes, or whether in Hellas and Phthia, they have diminished his state because old age constrains his hand and feet. I am no longer there under the light of the sun to help him, nor the man I used to be once when in wide Troad I killed the best of their people fighting for the Argives. If only for a little while, and here's some regret and sorrow, I could come like that to the house of my father, my force, and my invincible hands, invincible hands who recalls to us book one of the Iliad, right? Who had the invincible hands, unconquerable hands? Zeus. And my invincible hands would terrify such men as use force on him and keep him away from his rightful honors. 
you to think about Achilleus and Agamemnon for a moment. One thing we know about Agamemnon from the Iliad, especially from his apology that he gave to Achilleus after Achilleus agreed to or was in the process of agreeing to come back to the fight, is that who is it that Agamemnon is often first to blame, himself or someone else? Yes, And so he, as a leader, does not like to take personal responsibility for what has happened. Let's now think about his own death. Does he here, even in the underworld, take responsibility for his death? Or does he blame someone else? And not only someone else, but an entire type of someone else. An entire classification of someone else. All women. Is he still blaming other people for his problems? Is he still blaming other people for the things that happened to him that perhaps he could have kept from happening to himself had he been more aware kept his head a bit better, been less arrogant? Is he still the same man in the underworld that he was in the overworld, our world? And so what does that tell you about the underworld? When is it that you can change during the course of your life while you are still living? What can you never do once you have died because your fate is sealed? Change. And we see that even in these figures in the afterlife because Achilleus, well, let's think about him. He felt very slighted by Agamemnon, wished it had never happened, wished he had never received that new information, which was basically what? You think of yourself as a god, Achilleus, but if a man can take something from you, you are most obviously a what? A mortal, a man. And what is it that he now must certainly accept? That he definitely is a what? A mortal. And yet, what he does is he shows that, like in the Iliad, he is discontent with what he has and is still incapable of accepting his place. Even though he says he would prefer to be a slave to a poor farmer, will he ever be such a thing? No. So he might as well get used to being one of the kingly perished dead. I suppose that's all we have time for today. <laughs>